Students, today we have Lecture 9, Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Book 11, Part 2, Slides 151 to 167. Not a lot of content because we are here at the end of the semester, and I just want to get us out of the underworld. Not a good place to leave you during Christmas break. And so, last time we made it to the <coughs> underworld on the advice of Circe. Circe said, if you want to make it home, you must go to the underworld. You must meet there a blind prophet named Tiresias. Tiresias, when you give him a mixture of honey, milk, blood, uh, he will then get his powers of prophecy back and he will be able to tell you what the conditions of the curse were that was, uh, the, the curse that was uh, laid upon you by Polyphemus, or rather by Poseidon through Polyphemus because you revealed your name to him. Well, we made it down into the underworld. We met Elpenor there. Apparently he had died. We didn't even notice that he had broken his neck. We saw also uh, Odysseus's mother, Anticlea. Very sad, but she had to step to the side for the moment because the reason for going there was to see Tiresias. And again, Odysseus is very scared of seeing the Gorgon's head, Medusa's head. Medusa was a creature that had snakes on her head, and if you saw her eyes, she would petrify you, turn you to stone. We'll see her again in the Inferno, or at least reference to her in the Inferno. In any case, Odysseus has business to attend to, so he does not talk to his mother first. He talks to Tiresias. Tiresias tells him, there are two ways this curse can go. You can either die because you go to Thrinachia, the Isle of the Sun, where the Cattle of the Sun are, and thereon you eat the Cattle of the Sun, and then Apollo will make it so that you die. It will technically be Zeus that kills the companions of uh, Odysseus with a lightning bolt uh, at the behest of Apollo because he's so upset. In fact, Apollo will threaten to take the sun to the underworld and never again show it to the overworld if Zeus does not um, kill the men who ate his cattle. In any case... But if Odysseus doesn't eat those cattle, then he will return home in a sad shape, poor, no ship, and without any of his companions, and his house will be infiltrated with suitors who he will have to deal with. If he does deal with them, he will still have to go to yet another land where people know nothing of the sea, they have purple cheeks, and where he will plant his ore in the ground as if it were a like flower or a tree, and, even, and only then will Poseidon and be square, and then... He will die in some unwarlike way. In any case, after we then talk to Odysseus's mother, who says she literally died of sadness, uh, and in fact, I, I probably didn't give you that slide here yesterday. In any case, yes, here, here you go, just so that you have it. So we met Odysseus's mother. Sad thing about this is Odysseus did not know she was dead. She was not dead when he had left from Ithaca. His boy was still a baby, who he will never get to know as a baby or a boy. He will meet him essentially as a full-grown man, about 20 years old, um, and uh, his mother and his father were, were still very much alive. His father is still alive, but he exists in sort of a sorry state as sort of an itinerant farmer, not an itinerant farmer, but just a very poor farmer who has some sort of oxhide cap that increases his misery. Who knows why? Maybe it's ugly, maybe it's very hot, maybe it's very uncomfortable. But his mom, she died. She has died while he was gone. How did she die? Well, her explanation is what I said is perhaps the most uh, guilting mom explanation you could possibly imagine, which is, I died because of sadness for you. I died because of longing for you, Odysseus. You took too long to make it home. I could not bear the sadness, and therefore I died. Odysseus tries to hug her three times, which is something we'll see again twice in the Aeneid with Creusa, as well as the uh, Anchises, the father of Aeneas. And we'll even see it again in the first books of the Purgatorio when Dante meets his old friend Casella. In any case, bless you. Bless all of We then see a catalog, after a small break in the action, a catalog of famous women. I'm only really going to focus on a couple of them because both of them 
do not quite see the situation they find themselves in. They emphasize the theme from the Odyssey of when you simply look at appearances, you do not see the substance of a thing. You do not see the entirety of a thing. Uh, and so, the first one I'm going to talk about is Tyro. The second one I'll talk about is called Epicasta by Homer, but Jocasta by Sophocles, who we will be reading. We will be reading this story of Oedipus, actually, um, uh, after this book, in fact. And, and so, Tyro. She was in love with a river named Anipius, but... Poseidon saw her once, decided that she was very beautiful, took the form of Anipius, lay with her, and then afterwards said, Hey, actually, you did not lay with the person that you love. You laid with a god. This theme will come up again when Penelope does not recognize Odysseus in front of her or does not wish to recognize him because she will say something to the effect of, Hmm, the gods can take on many different forms, and thus, I am not too quick to trust even your appearance. Not so here with Tira. She did trust the appearance of the river Anipheus. It was actually Poseidon. She lay with him. She had Poseidon's son. Too bad for her and Anipheus. Worse. Uh, that said, though, the sons she had were Pelias and Neleus. Neleus was, of course, the great father of Nestor. And so, um, uh, though she was tricked, she did have some fantastic sons. And did and has a line that, it, at least in the time of the Odyssey, is still a very strong line through Nestor and Pesistratos. And so... The second person has an even worse story, Epicasta. Epicasta is Jocasta. Well, at the time of the birth of her son, she received from Tiresias a prophecy that one day their son would come and murder his father, her husband, and lay with her mother. Well, you know, uh, they did not want that to happen, so they wanted to kill their son so that those terrible things never happened. Sort of similar to the idea of Kronos eating his own children. The older generation trying to stay alive, well, uh, at the expense of the younger generation. The opposite of how history and education work. And so, they didn't want to get their hands dirty themselves. So they asked a shepherd to take out uh, the, the baby to the fields and kill it. Well, that shepherd, he didn't have the heart to do it either. And so he, sort of like, and this is a very typical motif in hero uh, stories, Moses, Heracles, uh, Oedipus, that when they are little babies... They are endangered in some terrible way. Heracles had two snakes sent at him. Moses was put in the reeds. Uh, he was put in a river in a basket. Pretty dangerous for a baby to be in a river in a basket or just in a room alone by itself with a fork. Um, uh, you never know what they can do. It takes a lot of training for you all to learn how to take care of yourselves. In any case, the baby was then picked up by a different shepherd, taken to a different kingdom, raised in that kingdom, uh, where he thought that his parents there were his were his actual parents, his father and his mother. Well, one day, after a guy gets drunk and says he's not actually his father's son, he goes to an oracle of Apollo, and he says, uh, Tell me, great uh, Apollo, am I my father's son and my mother's son? And the uh, oracle says, Well, you're going to kill your father, and you're going to lay with your mother. And he says, Well, I don't want to do that. So he runs away from his adopted family that he does not know is adopted. On the way home, he meets a guy who bangs him on the head and says, Get out of the way. That was his father, King Laius. He kills him and his henchmen. Then he makes it to a city called Thebes, that, which has a sphinx in front of it, which asks a riddle to everybody that comes. And it says, what goes on four feet in the morning, two in the afternoon, and three in the evening? He is the man that knows that answer, and the answer is man. Four feet for crawling, two for walking, three for walking with a cane when you get old. It's a metaphor. It's a riddle. And so he answers that question, and he's given the beautiful queen of Thebes as his wife. Who is that queen? Epicasta, Jocasta his mom. And he only finds out about this much later. We'll get into that story when we get into that. In any case, 
She should not have trusted appearances. Perhaps he should not have either. The substance of things often lies beneath the surface. All right, quick review. You don't need to write this. We met Elpenor. We met Tiresias. He told us about the prophecy of his future. Do not eat the cattle of the sun. Do know that there are suitors and battle waiting for you at home. Know that you're still going to die among some purple-cheeked people, even if you get through all of this. Then we saw Anticlea gives news on Penelope and Telemachus and Laertes. They're all doing fine-ish, uh, though, of course, Penelope is being accosted by suitors, and that she died from missing Odysseus too much. All right, now, after the catalog of women, the procession of famous women, including Tyra and Epicasta, we meet several Achaean heroes. We meet Agamemnon. Achilleus and Aias the Greater, it's like a nice reunion. It's like a high school reunion of Iliad characters. Remember how we took for granted the fact of who they were and the time we got to spend with them, mostly because we didn't know how to say their names and there were a lot of names in the Iliad and we were confused? Well, now we get to see them again. Unfortunately, however, the only one still alive of this troop is Odysseus. The other uh, three are dead. Uh, two from, I would say, terrible reasons. One from uh, a reason that he expected and accepted, although we will see him have changed his tune a little bit at this point. Alright, let's talk to Agamemnon first. Agamemnon and Odysseus speak. Agamemnon is the first Achaean that Odysseus speaks to from the Iliad. Um, now, he says, Oh, Odysseus, I have a terrible story to tell you. Odysseus, as you recall, does not know that Agamemnon is dead, did not know how he died. We only know that Agamemnon is dead because Telemachus found out that Agamemnon was dead from Menelaus. And so, uh, Odysseus is learning this for the first time. So, he didn't know Anticlea was dead. He didn't know Agamemnon was dead. What a bummer. And so, Agamemnon launches into a story. He says, oh, man, well, you know, when I got home, my wife, Clytemestra, was still holding a grudge against me for uh, killing Iphigenia and tricking her, saying that Iphigenia was going to be... Um, was going to be married to Achilleus. That didn't end up happening. We sacrificed her to get good wins from Artemis because I had upset her, or my father had, in any case. Um, uh, Agamemnon then says, <sighs> Clytemestra got seduced by my cousin, Aegisthus, who was raised as my brother, and then when I made it home, they gave me a nice dinner and all my men, and then they came into the room and they slit our throats, killed us as we were eating, including killing Cassandra. Recall Cassandra from Iliad, book 24. She is the woman who was cursed with the ability to give prophecy from Apollo because he loved her. But she was all. But the curse part of that was that even though she can give a true prophecy, nobody will ever believe her. Well, Cassandra was taken as concubine for, for Agamemnon for, during the sack of Troy. She's taken back with Agamemnon. She tries to warn Agamemnon, but her prophecies are never listened to, so he doesn't listen. Cassandra is also killed. Agamemnon also decides to give us a little bit of philosophy here. He says, listen, Clytemnestra and her actions have shamed womankind for all time, which is kind of a radical thing to say because if you were going to choose one of the daughters of Tyndareus or Leda to choose as a woman who had smeared the name of women for all, kind, for all time, it would not necessarily be Clytemnestra that would jump into your head at first. It might be Helen. In any case, not, uh, that family is very much cursed by Aphrodite, as you recall from the time before even the Iliad. All that said, there are examples to hold against Clytemnestra and Helen, in particular, very faithful Penelope. But as you can see, Agamemnon still judges the world by his personal situation. He thinks because he was killed by his wife that therefore all wives or all women are evil and potential killers. Whether that's true or not, uh, fairly unlikely. 
But um, he does seem to still be uh, outraged at the manner of his death. And so he does give Odysseus a little piece of advice, which Odysseus takes, but not necessarily because Agamemnon gives it, which is this. Even when you make it home, do not tell all the things you know to your wife. He seems to have be embodying Zeus's wisdom from book one of the Iliad, where Zeus said, there are thoughts I have that are too weighty for you, Hera, before he threatens her with his unconquerable hands. In any case, uh, we'll see whether Odysseus takes that advice or not. In any case, or excuse me, next, Achilleus approaches. He takes long strides. And Odysseus really gives him quite the encomium, quite the introduction when he enters. He says, oh, Achilleus, you who weep, Honored as a god, and man, after you died, we had like a 17-day-long uh, uh, funeral celebration. All the Nereids, that's 40 or so uh, sea goddesses, as well as your mother came out from the ocean. We saw them. Uh, the muses were down there singing your dirge. That means it's the most beautiful possible song, and it was just incredible. And Achilles' response is very dynamic. He shows that he has not changed at all in the underworld. Just as he never had enough in life, so will he never have enough in death. I would rather follow the plow as thrall, that means slave, for another than be king over all the Paris dead. So Odysseus says, you look like a king down here. And Achilles says, I would give up all of this just to be a slave on earth. Nothing is better than life. Which is so interesting because recall when he was alive, he, he was confused about why to be alive because everybody who dies, cowards and heroes, all go to the same place. So when he was alive... Nothing worked out for him. When he was dead, nothing worked out for him. Or nothing was good enough for him. He never had exactly what he wanted. He thought that the grass was greener on the other side. Well, when you get to that side, the grass is all of a sudden greener on the other side again because it's a problem of perception, not a problem of reality. In any case, he then says, well, tell me about my son and my father. And Odysseus says, I don't know anything about your father, uh, really, but your son, Neoptolemus. Well, he was in the wooden horse with us. He was always the first in battle, and he always fought hard. And there was a man who showed up who was one of the top Trojans. His name was Eurypylus, and your son killed him. And Achilles, wanting his son to be just like him, just like Aias wanted his son to be just like him, and maybe as strong as him, sort of an interesting note there, he walks away happy. He's very happy to hear that his son has been so strong. He will probably not be happy to hear that his son will eventually be killed by Agamemnon's son, Orestes over uh, a girl, Hermione, the daughter of Menelaus. But that is what will happen. Orestes will track down Hermione and Neoptolemus, and he will kill Neoptolemus and take Hermione back, because he was promised her before uh, Neoptolemus was. Neoptolemus has her promise to him during the Trojan War. Orestes had her promise to him before the Trojan War. So that's how that works. In any case, Achilles strides away. He's happy. Now we have to see somebody who's rather un happy with Odysseus. Aias the Greater. Now recall, there was a story that after Achilles died, two men competed for his arms, his armor, as it were. They were Odysseus and Aias the Greater. Aias the Greater thought he had a greater claim because he is, of course, first cousin to Achilles, tall and beautiful like Achilles, and uh, a great warrior like Achilles, and had done feats of great valor during the course of the Iliad. In fact, when we uh, saw him in the Iliad, he was often doing things that other people could not. Defending uh, against many, many Trojans at a time, defending the ships of the Achaeans, he was essential to the Achaean war effort. In any case, Aias is still mad about the fact that Odysseus defeated him in a speech contest, and the fact that he had to compete in a speech contest, rather than, like, say, a contest of arms against Odysseus, where he would have had the advantage rather than Odysseus. In any case, Odysseus says, oh, 
What a terrible day it was when we competed for the arms. I wish I could give them back. You were far more important than that. Ayas turns away from him, refuses to speak to him. We will see a very similar moment in the underworld in book six of the Aeneid when a former lover of Aeneas, who we will meet in book one and uh, see in great detail in book four, will also be there and will turn from him, sadly. And so, now we meet two remarkable mythological men. We're going to see this King Minos man, not only here, we'll see him and his brother Radamanthus also in the Aeneid, and we will see him as judge of the dead, even in the Inferno. King Minos, a couple interesting things about him. He comes from Crete. Crete is where uh, the first Greek language came from. It was either Linear A or Linear B. Uh, also, he was very famously the stepfather of the Minotaur, because his wife, Pasiphae, was cursed by a goddess, I think it was Hera, to fall in love with a white bull. Then she had an effigy built by her by a great inventor named Daedalus, who also invented the labyrinth, which the bull was put into, the Minotaur was put into. She lay with that bull. Then she had a half-bull, half-man son, who was actually down in the Inferno in the Circle 7 that we will see next year. In any case, he was put into a labyrinth. He would eat and kill uh, Athenian men who were sent there as uh, tributes, uh, women and men, uh, seven of each each year, until Theseus, the great hero, a little bit lesser than Heracles, was sent to take care of him, which he did with the help of Ariadne. In any case, second big guy, excellent, excellent hunter named Orion. Supposedly hunted even with a club, sort of primitive, like Heracles using his club to hit people on the head. Doesn't take a lot of skill to bank, bonk people on the head with a club. That's why often cavemen are represented as having, like, say, like a leopard skin hung over one shoulder and a club. Because, well, you just pick up stick, hit person with stick. Very simple. In any case, Orion was known to be a very famous, beautiful, tall hunter. Artemis loved him. But as you know, Artemis is chaste and virginal, so they could never get married, so it could never work out. In any case, Artemis's brother Apollo got a little bit jealous of this Orion. She was spending a lot of time with him. This is one of the accounts of how he died. Um, Apollo bet Orion that he could not swim across the sea. He being sort of like, Thor was like, no, nah, I could probably swim across the sea. And then when he was so far away that he was only a speck to the eye, Apollo said, Artemis, do you think you can hit that speck with an arrow? Well, she's the goddess of arrows and shooting arrows, so she does. And what had happened? Well, she had accidentally hit Orion and killed him, and so that's how he died. The reason I bring these two up is that King Minos is still down here judging. Orion is still down here hunting. Agamemnon is still down here complaining. Achilles is still down here being dissatisfied. When is the time for you to make changes in your life? After you have died or while you are still living? Obviously, while you're still living. And so, after you're dead, you can't make any changes. So you might as well make the changes that you want to see in the world while you are actually in the world. Otherwise, they will not happen. Seems to be the idea. All right, last person we need to talk about. Oh, yeah, also, obviously, this is the uh, constellation Orion. It's either that or the Big Dipper, which is the biggest constellation in the sky. You can see Orion. You generally recognize him by his belt with those three uh, stars together. I don't know their names. I should learn them. I don't know as much about astronomy as I want. And that's him actually literally picking a lion up by the throat with his left hand and about to hit it with a club. He, like Heracles, very strong dude. All right, now we have to see... Three arch sinners before we see Heracles. These three arch sinners are the people who are sort of the uh, precedents or the, uh, hmm, how, what's the word I want to say? They are the prefigurations of people who will be tortured in the Christian idea of hell. That, so in the Greek afterlife, in the Achaean afterlife, uh, most people are just in the fields of Asphodel sort of flitting about mindlessly. It, there's not really a heaven 
There's not really a hell, there's definitely not a purgatory where people transform. It's not sophisticated or articulated in the same way that, uh, say, Dante's underworld is, and even Virgil's underworld is. Virgil's will be split at least into Elysium, a place of reward, and into Tartarus, a place of punishment, and into the fields of Asphodel, where, like, infants and uh, other various people are left. Here, we only get three people who did sins so bad that they get punished, and their names are Tatias, who attempted to rape a goddess, Leto, Tantalus, who attempted to uh, test the omniscience of the gods. He tried to feed, he, he, so Tantalus is an ancestor of Agamemnon, terrible family, that Atreus family. He had a son, and he named Pelops, uh, for whom the Peloponnesian Peninsula is named, and he cut him up into little pieces, and then made him into a stew, and offered that stew to the gods because he was invited to a banquet. Well, none of the gods ate any of old Pelops, except for Demeter, because she was very sad because her daughter um, Persephone had just been abducted by Hades and taken into the underworld. She ate his shoulder, and so Hephaestus made him a new golden shoulder. But because this man attempted to test the omniscience of the gods, he is forever uh, uh, submerged in water and has food above him, uh, uh, tantalizing him, titillating him, making his hunger uh, aroused, which is uh, what the basis of the purgatorial punishment of gluttony in Terra 6 of the Purgatory is based on. We'll talk about that next year. And then the third one, this guy's probably the most famous because people think that working every day is like what he has to do. His name is Sisyphus. He tricked death. He, uh, he tricked death into giving him, uh, or in, he managed to uh, put death into a bottle or a box Something like that where death could not do his job anymore. And uh, it took Hermes saving death and then sending Tantalus, or excuse me, uh, Sisyphus down to the underworld to defeat him. And so these are all kind of tricky individuals who got caught. Then we'll see Heracles. All right. Huh, I go in reverse order. Let's start with Tatias. I'll go backwards. So he is, what is his punishment? We see that he is being punished because he attempted to abduct Rape Leto. Not a very smart idea. His punishment, and you can see this in art, is to have two vultures tear at his liver and eat it raw every day of his life. And then students often ask, well, what happens at the end of the day? It grows back. And then he goes through that again. The idea is his pain is what? Never ending. Endless. Exactly. Terrible, terrible, terrible. He's very similar to the Titan Prometheus who has one eagle eating his liver constantly. So a uh, good uh, game to play with yourself is when you are in a museum and you see an eagle eating the liver of a man-looking person, is that Tatias, if there are two, or is it Prometheus? And if there are only, if there is only one vulture and it says it's Tatias, you can go, mm, this artist did not do his research. In any case, Tantalus. Tantalus, I think, has the gnarliest of the punishments because it's a punishment of what you're not given rather than what you are given. So we think of punishments, we think of getting lit on fire, drowned, whipped, stabbed, all sorts of terrible, painful things. Well, here's another painful thing, to, to have things you want kept from you. He is forever parched. That means he's thirsty, so thirsty, like you just ran three miles in the sun, you didn't drink any water yesterday, you didn't drink any water today, your, 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 your stomach is a drought. Well, he has water up to his chin, but he's parched. Well, why doesn't he just drink it? But when he tries to drink it, it recedes below. It's always right in front of him, but never within his grasp. It is utterly tantalizing. 
Well, he's also starving because he never gets to eat. Well, look at this food. It's right above his head, these branches. And this tree is supposedly like, it's like a candy tree for him. Pomegranates, olives, several other sorts of fruits as well. It's not even a real tree. And yet they're all right in front of him. And he tries to reach up, and they recede beyond his grasp. And so he always has exactly what he wants more than anything right in front of him and never has the capacity to get it. It's sort of like if you've ever had one of those dreams where you're like playing baseball, and you got to run to first, and you're like one foot away from first base, but you can't get it because it's always just getting away from you, and you never quite get there. Well, that is his entire existence for all time. Ooh, Sisyphus. Now, there is a very famous 20th century philosopher named Albert Camus who writes about the myth of Sisyphus, and he makes the point that sort of every human lives the life of Sisyphus. Well, this is what he has to do forever. He pushes a giant boulder up a hill. There's an infernal punishment based on this, Circle 4, the avaricious and the prodigal that you'll see next year. Um, he pushes it all the way up the hill. You're like, wow, what a great an accomplishment. You push the boulder up a hill. It's like a great CrossFit workout. Well, the thing is, though, the boulder at the top just rolls all the way down to the bottom, and he has to do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, like a tick talk of a grandfather clock. It never ends. And so the idea is that that would, that would eventually drive you crazy because you would just be doing the same thing over and over again, which if you ever had to file something or worked in filing, you understand that that kind of thing can make you go crazy. All right, those are the arch centers. Now, Heracles. A couple things about Heracles. He was the son of Zeus, raised by uh, a man named, uh, oh no, how about Amphitryon. Amphitryon, who was not truly his father. And I believe Alcmene was his mother. In any case, he very famously uh, killed his first wife. He had two wives, Megara and Dea Nera, and his family, his, his, I think it were two children, in a bout of rage that was put on him by Hera because she hated him. Recall that his name Heracles means glory of Hera. It's a very ironic name because he is obviously not her glory. He's not her son. Um, but he had to then commit 12 great labors after that. Impossible labors. He had to, uh, the funniest one is the cleaning of the uh, the stables of, I believe, the Stygian mares. They, they were immortal horses that because they were immortal, created immortal amounts or endless amounts of feces. And so he had to clean out these uh, stables. The only way he did that was by rerouting a river to clean that. So it took a natural force to defeat a natural force. He also defeated an Indian lion, a hydra, had to go to a Garden of Eden sort of place called the Garden of Hesperides, take a golden apple from there, had to even hold the world on his shoulders for Atlas at one moment, who helped him through that, and even himself went down to the underworld, saved Theseus, who got stuck down there with his friend Pyrrhothos, who had to stay there. Too bad he wanted to abduct Persephone didn't work out for him. Whenever you try and abduct a goddess as a mortal, it doesn't work for you, is the Greek mythological idea. And uh, uh, Heracles made it back up, stealing the guardian of the dead, who was a three-headed uh, dog named Cerberus, which, if you've read or seen Harry Potter, Fluffy from the first one is based on, of course. Now, weird thing about Heracles. He's still hunting. That's not odd. What's weird is that we're told by Homer that he is a shade and a god, which means that he has left a shade in the underworld, but his soul, or his substance, has ascended to Olympus. So when he died, he had hydro poison eating him from the inside out, actually from the outside in, because uh, he put a shirt on from his wife at that time, from a centaur he had killed with a poison hydra arrow, that uh, uh, the centaur then gave his tunic or shirt to the wife, said it was a love potion that was on it. She then, being nervous or insecure about the love of Heracles, gave him that shirt, and it started to consume his flesh raw. He then had to climb a mountain, 
make his own funeral pyre with his best friend, Philoctetes, the same Philoctetes who got his foot hurt and uh, poisoned, who was then later brought to uh, Troy and won the, uh, won the reward for valor and killed Paris of Troy, of course. Well, when Heracles was burned alive, his mortal parts died, but his immortal part, soul, I suppose, ascended to heaven. And then he, uh, Hera actually makes a mock birth. He crawls under a blanket that she is under, and then out from under her legs, and then now he's adopted as her child, and she gives him her daughter Hebe, which means youth, as his wife. And that's where he is. But he also has a shade down in the underworld, which just makes me ask this one question, which I suppose we're going to have to pick up in seminar next semester, which is this. Are the shades down in the underworld the souls of the dead, or are they simply the memories of the dead that the living still have? And we don't have a lot of time to think about that, because we have to get back to our study, guys. That's the final lecture of the semester.